Hi. Okay, yes. I'll begin now. Okay. Welcome to More Than Just a Member of the Mormon's Journey Through Incarceration. Today's guest is Jennifer Hughes, where she served 20 years in Indiana prisons. At one time, she was considered the most violent offender, and later in her incarceration, she was considered the most changed offender. She was sex trafficked at the age of 13, but went on to become a professional softball player. Today, Jennifer is one of the nation's strongest advocates for women who are incarcerated. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, how are you? Thank you. I am doing good. Um, we'll just begin at the very beginning, and I will let you um, begin your story. And I may interrupt you mm-hmm. and ask you questions. Um, but when we talked earlier, you did very well on your own without me having any input. So I'm going to turn over the mic to you and let you begin to tell your story. Okay, thank you. Um, I would like to start with saying that I have um, nothing in my story that wasn't given to me by other... Well, I'll be darned. (laughs) I have nothing in my story that was not given to me by the um, great people I was surrounded by, the people who supported me, my higher power, and many, many talented and wonderfully smart women that I was incarcerated with. So I started going to prison at the age of 22. I went to Rockville Correctional Facility in Indiana. And in 1993, arrived there on January 4th, 1993. At first, when I was, was um, intake for the unit and the prison, it was um, 327 women in an old army barracks. Um, since then, they have increased up to almost 1,500 or possibly over that by now. Every building that was there now, but then is not there now, except one or two. It is a concrete jungle now. Then it was very personable. The staff was very kind. It was a medium security. It's now maximum. That's Rockville, Indiana, Rockville Correctional Facility. I've also been housed in Indiana Women's Prison. Okay, can so, I ask you one question real quick? Sure. Um, you did not mention what you were incarcerated for. Um, okay. Do you mind telling us that? No, I don't mind at all. So through my life, I struggled with addiction. So I have had um, seven, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's difficult to understand me sometimes. And uh, incarcerations for a total of 20 years and four months behind the fence. I have an array from forgery, receiving stolen property, possession of paraphernalia. And the changing factor in my life was a, a robbery. I... Um, can say that they increased throughout the years. And I believe that when I was incarcerated, I was probably more innocent than I would have ever been when I came out each time increasing in my criminal knowledge, my criminal um, aspect of how to do things. It's kind of like going to school. If you go in and you're innocent, you come out and you're a criminal for sure. And I'm not talking innocent of charges. I'm talking innocence in the, in, the, in the style of life and the person that you are. So those were the range, the range of uh, different crimes that I had. Okay. Um, you can continue on now. We're talking about your time at Rockville. and mm-hmm. Okay. So when I came in 
back in the 90s, the um, process would be you go to Indiana, Indiana Women's Prison, which was in Indianapolis, which is the first women's prison in the country. Then you would be um, what's called classified. I was classified to Rockville. Now that has changed, and Rockville being the number one maximum security in the state is um, classification, and then they send you either to IWP or Madison, which is the minimum. It's kind of like a work camp to do a lot of um, road crews, which should go out in the community. I've never been able to go to that because of the, the life I lived inside the penitentiary. In the penitentiary, you come to know people as sisters, mothers, brothers. So you take on a family unit. We have um, stores. They have um, drugs. They have the street mentality is very much the rule of thumb inside the um, penitentiaries. So when you get there, you're given a number, you're given a classification and a level. The level says where you can and cannot go, where you will be housed. That all consists of whether it's your crime, whether it was violent, how many times you've been in, if you were in before, whether you had um, CABs, which are conduct reports. So when I first went in, I was um, very low level. I stayed at Rockville. I was given the opportunity by a wonderful staff member named Miss Douglas. She was retired. She did a sexual childhood abuse victims class. It was a 12-week course. For the first time at 22 years old, I was able to express what had happened to me. Um, as a youth, I lived, my my family was very, they, they loved us, they did the best they could. So I played sports, I was good in school, but I had the flip side of that, which meant I was um, rebellious. I did ornery little things, but never in trouble as a youth. I didn't get my first charges ever until I was 22, which was during the middle of my semi-professional ball career. I went to college, I had scholarships, and I studied for a Bachelor of Social Work in Child Psychology, which I did not end up finishing, but am in current time trying to finish it. Um, so when I got there, I was a model uh, prisoner. They had lots for us to do, lots of activities. As the prison increased in size, which I consider to be a money game, it's just an opinion, it can be uh, proven by fact, that uh, they increase the prison population, they increase the buildings, they increase the staff, and then as they did that, they took more and more from the inmates themselves, including programs, which allowed us to better ourselves. So as it got larger, it got more violent. I um, did a uh, term in 15 months, then I was home eight months, I did a term for 18 months. Then I was home for four and a half years. Then I went back in. From October 2000 until 2017, I did several bits totaling. By the time I got out in 17, seven total bits. Um, so as things went along, my third bit, when I went in, I was angry. I was frustrated. Um, I was, I loathed, my, I loathed myself. I didn't have good self-esteem, self-worth. I thought that that was going to be my life forever. In the streets, doing drugs, being addicted, not succeeding, trying a lot of things. And I had, I can tell you, a lot of people back then tried to help me. Unfortunately, when you help someone and it's not getting healing from the inside, people don't use drugs, don't commit criminal activity across the board 
unless they have some reason, something that creates some kind of um, underlying problem within themselves. That was definitely true for me because I hid so much abuse. I didn't want to be that. So I lived a dual life. When I got in, Ms. Douglas was a saving grace. It was probably the first time I'd ever been able to tell someone what happened to me. I do credit the prison system for saving my life, but I also credit the prison system for keeping me inside so many times with their inability to see us as human people, see our value, treat us with some respect and dignity, and offer programs, readily offer programs. When I did finally change and start to improve myself, it wasn't because they came to me. It wasn't because they offered it to me. I had to go get it. I had to seek it out. By that time, I had become a violent offender. I resolved my problems with violence. I resolved um, everything I did. I had to lead with an example that matched the street mentality. Because most of the people that are inside the prison system have been abused, come from families that their family just didn't have any other knowledge of how to raise them, any other way than survival technique. So you're in a fight or flight, so to speak. You're either going to fight or you're going to run. And in the system, or the prison system and the incarcerated people, you don't want to run. That's a very lonely um, place to be. So I was very well liked. Um, I had many friends that I knew, many friends that I got to meet. And there were a group of women there that I met that were what we called long timers, which meant they had large um, sentences. Those women were some of the most empowering, educated, strong-minded, phenomenal women that I have to give credit for anything I have, anything I learned. It would have been your, your, your women that were there for a while. Now, what we called short timers were people under five years or so that came in, went out, came in, went out. They seemed to have a mentality that stayed in the streets, resisted change, and created a lot of habits. Your long timers are more stable. They've created a routine, and they've come to some kind of understanding that I have to be here. I have to make the best of it. That was the route I took. In the situation I was in, though, I found that my mind had been abused so much physically and sexually that I took on the idea that somehow the only way to solve my problems was to fight. So I was known for that. It's not one of my more, I'm not proud of that, but I do know it was what I had to do to survive. The prison system is not um, a slouch, so to speak. You go in and either you stand tall or you fall hard. So it was a lot I took. We spent a lot of time in the um, segregation quarters in Rockville. I did oh, four bits in lock, which is segregation, over six months. I did more than that in 30 days, 90 days, 60 days, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Once I had um, gotten there in 2000, I had the streets had done a number on me. I was addicted to drugs. I heard voices, and they started meditating. They at one time had me on 220 milligrams of Giadon. Your normal prescription for Giadon is between 40 and 120 as a top out. They have me on 200. What exactly is Giadon? 
Giadon is antipsychotic. So basically they took the idea that because I was so aggressive and because I was so violent, that they would manage me by numbness, manage me by giving me so much medication for uh, depression, um, borderline. Which in, and if you look at borderline, medications don't work. But they had me as an impulse control disorder. They had me as suicidal ideology. Uh, uh, and they had me on these different diagnoses. And really, it was kind of, the problem was I wasn't getting any healing and therapy. I didn't have all those diagnoses. But it's easy for them to do that. They give us very outdated medications, very outdated. So you have a lot of side effects. So at one point in time, I remember, remember a friend of mine, a long timer, saying, so I played sports and everything we did, we had activities we could join and stuff like that. So I did all that. And I was good at it, and everybody was challenged to try to beat, they, they referred to me as Pee Wee. They were challenged to beat Pee Wee teams because they were unbeatable. Like, I coached young girls at a place in Fort Wayne, Indiana, when I was younger. And I worked as a juvenile recreational leader with inner city kids who went to the same program I had as a child. Doesn't exist anymore, but it was a wonderful program. So um, I thrived, even though I was probably one of your more notoriously negative or violent people. When people got to know me, they found out I was not only very kind and generous, but I was I was smart. So in the streets, you have to hide that. In the prison system, you hide it until you realize that it's your way out. It's the way out. It's the way to change, and it's the way to get what you need to get. You have to outsmart them. You have to beat them at their own game, so to speak. Well, to me, looking back, I would say that was a shame because I shouldn't have to play a game to get some kind of recovery, some kind of healing. I should go in with these people that are supposed to help me rehabilitate and get an opportunity to be a different person when I come out. That's how I see it. What we find, though, is that when you go in, they're keyed on more punishing you than they are just, you've already been punished by getting a sentence. I agree to that. I did something. I deserved a sentence. Across the board, the sentences in Indiana are much more lengthy for the same crime than many other states, even the surrounding states. We have some surrounding states that are doing phenomenal work, some of the top in the nation on recovery, addiction, drug addiction, abuse, domestic violence. They're doing things just across the border from Indiana that they refuse to do in Indiana. They were rather housing. I ask why. Some of the women that I have been blessed to be around are very intelligent, very wise, and they show some facts. The fact is housing people is more important and more of a moneymaker than rehabilitating if you look at the recidivism rate, Indiana is one of the worst. Why? We ask the question, why? So, because they don't want to be out of a job. Some of the areas are, those areas where our prisons in Indiana are, for me, incarceration is more in those areas about jobs. You look at the amount of jobs in that area that are confinement officers, institutions, it's high. So if you take away those things, you're now affecting the community, the, the ability to pay their bills. So they invest quite a bit in that. 
so for me to watch Rockville grow from 327 to 1500 wasn't very like the number one reason I could express that was this jobs it's, it's, it's money so then so I see this across the board and I have to admit that it's disheartening to know that there are so many people that are being housed and I say the word housed for a reason they're being housed like animals um the environment is really it's suffocating is the word that I would like to use it's suffocating it suffocates the human spirit to be anything better than the environment you're in so that's across the board now am I saying all officers all staff are that way absolutely not but I must admit that when I've seen a decent, what we refer to as a decent officer come in, who goes by the book, treats you with dignity, treats you with human value, we find that either they are harassed, broken up to either be fired or quit, or until they change to be very rough, even abusive. So if you look across the board, you have to um, survive. And then people get in, and that's exactly what they do. They survive. So you would think, well, you survived it. What's the problem with that? Well, what happens is you come out to a system that sends you back to the same place you were. In Indiana, we don't have some of the things that the other states around us and then in the country have. They don't have opportunities for you to get a different place of uh, residence. They don't have opportunities for you to even have money in your pocket after you get out because you have so many fines, fees, obligations, and it's their money. And that's what they're worried about. They're really not worried about reunification with families, children. I'm talking about women that majority have them, of them have children. So what, do you, what, what does that do? That passes it from generation to generation. I have many friends of them and their daughters. One, two, sometimes more. That I see all of them in the prison at the same time. If that's not enough to say what is going on. So we... I don't know what it is. So we send them back out. They go right back to the same place, do the same thing, and come back in. They've not gotten any kind of rehabilitation. It's not – you'll hear people say prison's not for rehabilitation. So what is it? Is this a society that we want to look and devalue people who, even though as an adult, I have to take responsibility for carrying the mess that I was given as a child? It's my fault at that point. But if you know better, you do better. If you don't, you don't. So once I started paying attention to the sisters in the prison, as I called them, that were doing something with themselves, I started taking classes. But to do that, I had to stay out of trouble. Once you get a reputation like I had, that was very difficult. Not only are you challenged by the staff, you're challenged by yourself, and you're challenged by the new kids coming in or the new people coming in that want to make a name for themselves. Or, or try to survive and think that's the way to do it. You know, just buck up and fight. So it's difficult. It's a, it's, it's hard to maneuver. But it's the same sense. Once you get around some of the people that encourage me, my Michelle's, my, my Christina's, my Anastasia's, my, the people in the choir, the staff members that really loved us and wanted to be there to help us. Your Pam Ferguson's, your, the, just the different, your Dr. Kaufman's, your people like Miss Middleton. These are all people that help people inside the prison get what they need. And those are some of the most – I have some love for my sisters. So um, I have to say that 
you know, I could sit here and tell you all the escapades, the many things that I did to get the name that I had, but that would be a detriment to the to the whole idea of people seeing us with value. But I can tell you, I fought people I loved, I fought people I didn't know, and I fought people for the wrong reasons. To me at the time, it was kind of what I had to do. It was kind of what was what was expected of me. But with the help of other women that were in there that refused to stand down and take what was being done to us, I followed them. That was all I could do. They said, Pee-wee, you're drooling. Pee-wee, you're shuffling. What do they have you on? So I eventually started whittling off the medications. I started getting into programs that were offered by people that I, I, I knew cared about us, the Goodmans, the Ferguson's, the Mr. Jones, the Kaufman's, those sorts of people. And I said, what do you have I can get in? I took BBT four times. I took anger management several times. I took um, their 12-step their programs. I took um, feelings for damaged emotions. I got into the choir. I started not getting in trouble. I worked at 10 products after I stayed out of trouble for five years. And so eventually, starting somewhere around 2007, I had a phenomenal mentor who came from one of the um, retirement homes for nuns that didn't look at me as anyone but someone of value and encouraged me to take a non-violence code, and I did. I did for five years before I actually had another incident where I had got into a fight. But the reason I made it at the time. So in that time, I managed to get enough clearance for my uh, write-ups to get into this program. So I did. Took advantage of it, and I had to push it. They weren't offering. I had to push. And if it wouldn't have been for the women encouraging me, how'd you do this? Young kids coming up to you saying, PB, I know you used to be in all kinds of trouble. How do you stay out of the radar? And they say, man, I stopped doing stupid stuff. I stopped doing stuff right in the face. And I stopped pushing it until I got an opportunity to feel inside. That's all you got to do. So they discriminate in one prison against whites. They discriminate in another prison against blacks. They discriminate against um, gay girls or uh, anyone that's not different. So you have everybody being discriminated against across the board. And if you don't buy into the system, they will, like, it's kind of it's redundant, but we're living in hell and we're being put in it even through more. I don't know if you understand people that are addicts and alcoholics and criminals and people that have been post um, piling incarcerated people have feelings, have desires, just not the makeup and the value to match it, to do it. It's not that they don't think about it. It's not that they don't love their children. Many of them have a disease of alcoholism or addiction. Many of them have a, a poor moral or value system that was the best they could get at the time. And unfortunately, we survived. So some of the strongest people I've ever met are inside the prison. Some of the most talented, artistically wise. I know people that can sing, like the people that are on the radios. I know people that can write paperwork, grants, do education, teach, learn, express themselves in ways that people in the street don't know. Talented across the board, magnificent people that one moment in time created something that cost them. And every day they wake up and have to look in the mirror, and that came to a point where I was. And I looked in the mirror in 2007 and was not okay with that, you know? 
Are you still there? I'm here. Okay, so I looked at that and I said, you're a predator. Unacceptable. I had attacked a woman, burned an addiction, committed robbery, got away with it, found that I was arrested for probation violation or parole, I believe it was. And when they got through me, they tried to question me about it, and I felt so bad, I, 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 I confessed. I took them to everything and told them everything that happened. I was looking at a 20-year cap, open plea. The judge gave me 15, three, two suspended, 13, two, six and a half. I had some backup time from the parole. And I went in with a firm resolution to come out of there different, to not let them make me even worse than I was. And not only, not only that, but to come out a better person for it. I can't say that the prison system hurt me as much as it helped me, but I can't say it helped me as much as it tried to hurt me. If you don't go in there and take it, you're not going to get it. They'll come out worse. They'll come out worse. You'll come out more monsters. They're housing people. They're not helping people. They're housing people that have some point in their life been into some kind of really bad situation, really bad position. And they're just kind of stackpiling it on top of it. And I believe they call it correction. There's no correction about it. It's abuse. It's abuse across the board. Our prison system is abusive, not reconciling. It is not rehabilitating. It is allowing people to be abused in, in situations that they should not be doing. If they're saying that society is wanting to create a less, a little bit less environment of crime, a little bit more safe, you don't do that by creating more monsters, which is what housing does. In my opinion, and I know many people who believe this, and I know, I know many people who are going to disagree with it. They walk in our shoes, and they go through what we go through, then you can talk to me about it. If they haven't, and they're willing to listen, so am I. I know that I don't have all the right answers. I would have never been in the positions I was had I the right answers, right? I know there's people that teach me in all areas of life from all kinds of life. I wouldn't have gotten that stuff without the prison, but I wouldn't have got it without the women that are in the prison, without the people, the human beings with great ideas, wonderful people that committed a crime at one time in their life. And some of them, you know, we do have people in prisons that are not guilty. We have people there that are guilt by association, yes. guilt by circumstance. We have states that still hold you accountable for murders, that other people commit. So if you're in one of the states, like Florida, Indiana, or those places where you commit a crime, and somebody who's in commission of the felonies, what they refer to, commits a murder, everyone with you gets that murder. To me, I can't hold myself accountable for someone else's finger. I can't hold myself accountable for someone else's actions. But they say who you run with will get you. This is battle treatment. It's, it's who, who you, who does what. So I think some of that needs to be looked into. I work with some women who are doing some things I'm not getting to do right now because I'm still having to work on me. But they are working on things like changing laws against children that are put into adult incarceration. That the, car, that the prison system claims these children are not put into open population. I'm here hmm. to tell you that is a lie. Now, we know there are many, 
juveniles in the Indiana prison system. And over the years, we've had some of the most notorious situations. Your Paula Coopers, your, your Lovelaces, your, your situations with horrific crimes were co- co- committed. Paula Cooper, who took her own life because she was so, we assume, so distraught, couldn't live outside in the free world. Thirty-some years later, a child who goes into the prison system comes out educated, bachelors, phenomenal person, people that no longer are the person they were that went in, and they come out to a free world that doesn't want to give them a chance. I know women. I know women who want to stand up for that. They did a long time. They've helped me through it. They've helped many women through it, and they're standing in the trenches. They're working in programs to change laws against felons. Once you get out, you have things that keep you from jobs. You have things that keep you from voting. You have things that keep you from housing. So you take all that away from us after we change, and what do we get to do? We get nothing to do but the same part of the problem that we were in that got us here in the first place. Here we are stuck in it. Now, I have to admit, some of the women I know have broke that chain, and I have to be proud of that. My mentors and the women that I was in prison with are some of the most talented progressive thinkers I've ever witnessed. Whether our friendships were good at times, bad at times, we had respect for each other. And I never got that in the free world. I never got the acknowledgement that, okay, you've done something, but who are you? What do you want to become? And what's the legacy you want to leave behind? I can make a less paycheck and be happier than making a good amount of money. I know that today. I know that the thing that I must do is to allow people to see incarcerated, post-incarcerated people as human beings, ex-addicts as human beings. People who have had problems in life are some of the most well-rounded people you'll ever meet, non-judgmental, willing to give the next man a, a helping hand. I want that kind of world to live in. I want to know that my neighbor has went through some things, my coworker has went through some things, and came out on the other side a better person. The people I know, they've done that. The people I follow, they've done that. The people that haven't gotten the chance to do that, we're out here working for that. That's what we live for. Because we know the pain. It's, I can't express how degrading, how minimal you feel, how unworthy you feel when you have all those labels carried on your back and how hard it is to shake them. So basically, you're saying that you've lost all your dignity. When you come home, unless you had done some of the things the women that I followed did, but the first several times I came home, that's right. I had nothing. I was nothing. So I did nothing. And that's the reason I got into podcasting, because I want to make sure that um, women like you and my daughter um, do get their dignity back or do not lose it at all. Absolutely. We don't have to lose it. We shouldn't have to. You're right. And I, I am so happy that I got to do this. This is like such an opportunity for me because a person like me and several people that I know just like me, we don't get the opportunity without family members. When I'm incarcerated, my family is incarcerated. Your right. daughter's incarcerated. You are incarcerated. When we're in addiction, our families are, are affected the same way. My family, which I didn't have the advantage of that, but if my family wanted to send me money to take care of me, 
they're paying for high prices that are jacked up. They're paying for things that really across the board are money makers. Eight percent of the phone calls, I think it was at one time, were going to the, the prison. So much of the commissary money is going to the prison. We're paying like eight dollars for ten or twelve pack of tampons before they pushed it to get the legal system to give us tampons. As women, yeah. as women, we could only get one or two pads, and then you would have to beg the staff for a pad. These are as women human needs. Exactly. We're women. That was there. Now, some of the women pushed, and they gave us that stuff now. Go ahead. It is so different for women than it is men. Mm-hmm. There's more violence with men in that are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. But for women, there's not a whole lot of opportunities available to them. No. Isn't that correct? That's correct. You see across the board men getting cuts that women don't get, men standing their ground and forcing change that women don't stick together because society has taught us to fight with each other, you know. But we get um, the emotional trauma that a woman goes through is way worse than anyone could ever think. You can hit me, it's going to heal. You can talk to me with a double-edged tongue, and I'm going to remember it for years and maybe never heal. The devaluing, the degradation, the the isolation, the lack of, we can't touch each other. We can't hug each other. I had a sister in prison once, calls home. Her poor son had been murdered that night. She breaks, yes, she breaks down on the phone, screaming and crying. The women that went to comfort her and take her in their arms were wrote up and lost time for that. Are you serious? I am serious. I won't put their names up there because I've not spoken to them, but that is a real story. I have seen women get what they call a sex act, and 216 is the referred code, which is meant to stop woman-on-woman, man-on-man activity. 216 is you lose your time, you go to lock, you lose your ability, you get in programs. Now, we're talking about women here. We're talking about women who are internally wired to have affection. I've seen it happen when someone is touching a hand, hugging someone. We're not talking sex acts. We're not talking bad. That happens, and because you're in prison, you have to follow the rules. Don't get that wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it is beyond that. They will take sitting on a bed. You know you can get a 216 for sitting on someone else's bed. We're talking a sex act write-up for sitting in her bed. I know that my daughter says that one of her friends, when she comes into her her pod or dorm, whatever have you, um, that they will sit on the bed and they'll do crossword puzzles together or mm-hmm. play cards or something like that. And the minute that a guard is headed their way, they're alerted, and the girl gets off her bunk. Absolutely. Um, yes. And yes. I think, you know, women need that special interaction. They need to have um, comfort. Mm-hmm. And if they can't get it from their loved ones on the outside, they get it from those on the inside. That's right. That's why we have a whole family unit. I continued to go back to prison because it was where I was accepted. They loved me unconditionally there. 
I could walk in a broken nest from the most recent release, and they would love me. I know people that, most people would say, oh, that's, they're not worth anything. They committed a murder. They committed an uh, armed robbery. They hurt someone. They did this. They did that. And as I knew who they were, I could no longer or never did see them as a person that I, I looked at the facts. I looked at the criminal case. I said, wow, right? I'm a human. I said, oh, wow. But then I look at the person I know, and I'm like, this doesn't match. This doesn't equal a human being and their value and who they actually are. But now society puts us in that. Once you make a mistake across the board, you're forever that mistake. And you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, my daughter was lucky enough to be uh, convicted in a very small town of 2,000 people, mm-hmm. and everyone has stood behind her. And no one has forgotten that she is in prison, mm-hmm. and I am grateful for that. She's mm-hmm. not been ostracized. Of course, she's still inside, mm-hmm. and but I received nothing but good vibes from people for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think it's because of our family reputation. You mm-hmm. know, we were known in the community, and therefore our daughters were, were good people. Mm-hmm. And my daughter was a nurse, and she got railroaded. And hopefully she's going to get out soon. And I'm hoping that no one ostracizes her when she does come home. Yeah. Um, because they haven't up to this point. But there yeah. will be individuals who do. Oh, absolutely. So we have can, can you people. Give us some, um, can you give us some, like, insight into how to help her through to transition through that period? Well, one of the things I think has worked for me, and that's what I can do is my own experience or the experience I've seen for others that I know is that if you can get some healing, it could take some time to do something with the time that you have and then come out and apply yourself to doing something for someone else. The key to everything I do is that I get out of my own self, my own self-centeredness, my own ego, and do something for someone else. If I do something for someone else, I no longer am being self-centered. I'm no longer in the me category. I'm no longer doing things that are bad for people. And in doing that, I build self-esteem. When I can build okay. self-esteem and see myself as a better person, across the board, I become a better person. Um, yes, my daughter my daughter says that when she gets out, that she is going to take the bar exam. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she's got like a photographic memory, whatever she re- reads, she retains. Mm-hmm. And she said, Mom, I want to be an attorney because I want to come back here and help these women that are in here that need my help. Yeah. Does anybody in society wonder why people come out of prison and love the people that are in prison so much? If those people were so bad internally, it's because they're not bad internally. They make a mistake in life and they pay for it. Now, the women that I know are trying to do something about that. The women that have come out of the Indiana prison system that I got to follow, that I was mentored by, I I can't say enough to tell you how phenomenal they are. Um, 
I, I won't put their names out there because I don't know what they feel about that right at this point, but you and I will talk about that and see if you can contact them and maybe talk to them as well. But they have come under the understanding and the um, desire to do exactly what we're talking about. Help the next girl. Help the next man. Help the person that's incarcerated and doesn't know what to do when they get home. How do I change a lifestyle? How do I change an environment? How do I change a family curse? How do I break chains that have been generational? How do I change neighborhoods that that is the existence, the street mentality, lifestyle? So the Pixie Mortgages program that we were working on at IWP, but I didn't get to tell you, when you go to IWP, Indiana Women's Prison, is they allow programs to come in there that do stuff for children, that do stuff for the inmates, that bring in food and parties and festivals and church events and things like that. Now, Rockville does not. You can come in for a church service and do a church service. You cannot do anything in. You cannot have a party in there. You cannot have Christmas bags brought by churches, stuff like that. IWP, that is not true. IWP has a different mentality. There was a woman who retired years ago named Dana Blank. Dana Blank, if you know Dana Blank, you know why we revere her. She was such a wonderful woman. Wanted to do the kind of things that were necessary to help women and people that were incarcerated. Now, not to say that some of the people that are in charge now or all of them are not good or bad. I'm not saying that at all. I go across the board, all people are good until you really, really prove it because mistakes are just mistakes. They're not lifetime, not lifetime events and, and styles, you know. That doesn't make a person. I mean, several mistakes, obviously, if I did seven bits in prison. But I managed to stay out since 2018, and it wasn't until I had several years, and I'm still in therapy. I'm still trying to always maintain sober. I'm always trying to recover. I'm always trying to improve myself because I'm nowhere close to what I would like to be. Never will I be. But if we don't look at it and start valuing people, taking labels off them, giving them opportunity to prove themselves, let them vote. After you come off probation, after you finish whatever incarcerations you were supposed to do, and all your paperwork is gone, give them the rights back. If they've proven that they've done their time, they've done the, the busy crime to do the time, and then they've com- finished the commitment, let them become normal people again. Don't hold something over their head for a lifetime, for a moment in time. Now, they would say, well, you did it over and over. I hear that a lot. And that's okay. It's a true story. I did a lot of things over and over. It wasn't until someone else showed me my value. It wasn't until somebody said, keep trying. Get up, baby. As long as you have a breath in your lungs, you have a chance. I'm not only on YouTube, I sing. I learned that I had a voice to sing. When the women in the prison choir taught me, I learned through that how to communicate with my higher power. Those were essential things. Pastor Benny at the Indiana Women's Prison teaching me how to make a relationship with my higher power, how to spread love and joy and happiness, how to look at the next man is more important than your needs, or your, your desires more than your needs. Your needs are okay, but your wants and your desires, just to put that on the back burner. You have to do something for someone else, and for me, it works out for the better. I get my needs met as long as I'm not putting them before everyone else's.
You know, um, I did a little uh, search for your name on Google, and I I found a poem. Did oh, you write a poem? I did. I did. I was involved with five other women and a woman that had come in through Dr. Kaufman at IWP from the University of Chicago, um, Eliza Brown. She is a, a, I believe, arts and theater uh, professor, and she brought in, she was making an opera, and six of us gave our text ideas, and she put the text in it. We did um, music and sounds for the backdrop, and then we're on the um, we're on the production crew. Before COVID hit, we were getting ready to do an, an opening in Knoxville for some kind of festival, and then COVID hit two weeks before. But um, then I was I submitted, and a couple of the girls, Laura Campbell, Brittany, we uh, submitted poems based on the idea of what the the opera was. They picked mine. <laughs> I wrote it about in 10 minutes during what we call count when we get counted. I sat down on my bed that day. I thought about my time in the bedlock system, and I wrote that poem. Yeah, it's one of my my most prized possessions, along with the fact that I'm on a production crew of an opera, along with these fine women. Those women, those six women, those are the women I talk about a lot. Those are the ones that guided me. Would you mind if I read the poem? Uh, I love it. Yes, I'd be honest. And it is called Untitled, correct? Mm-hmm. Called Untitled. Okay. I'm, oh, just a second. I've got to pull it right back up. Okay, I'm going to read it because it really touched me when I read it. Thank and you. It, and it spoke about what females actually go through mm-hmm. and what they feel like when they are incarcerated. Yes, ma'am. So I'm going to read it. And I won't do it justice like you would do because it's personal to you, mm-hmm. but... I want to read it for our listeners. Okay. They've beaten my human side so long my spirit has nowhere to hide. I can't remember who I once was and where I was headed. A daily life created out of need and necessity seems like my propensity for survival must outlast this intensity. The daily grind that keeps my focus suspended in time, who am I or where have I been? Will this be the day that it ends? Fortress ways that are the highlight of my days. I grow fond of the pain and misery, the anguish in my mind. It's the only thing, only feelings I have sometimes. If it were to go away, would mere sanity come out to play? Or is this madness my reality and my truth? Or is this madness, oh, sorry, blamed on me because of, of my power? Fear and cowardice locking me in this tower couldn't have been my beauty and youth that caused this slanderous cauterization of my virtuous reputation. Yes, ma'am. And I think that that bespeaks so much about all of the women that are incarcerated and how they must feel when those, what I, what I call, when the bar is slammed home. Mm-hmm. Um, you never and, forget that sound, either. Yes. And that I am writing a book about women in, that have been incarcerated, and I'm hoping to include you in this book. And it is called When the Bar Slammed Home. Mm. And um, God gave me a sign when my on the day that my daughter was sentenced that I was to write this book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I thought, well, I don't know anything about the prison system. I've never been involved. I've never you know, gotten into trouble. How am I to do this? 
Mm-hmm. And just two short months ago, he showed me how. And it was by doing this podcast. God bless to you. Get, <laughs> to get individual stories from women mm-hmm. and to show the world that you are human beings yes. and that you're not some animal like they treat you, right. like society treats you to be. Right. And that is why I am so happy to have you on my podcast today. It has you, been a pleasure. You are making such a difference in the communities that you work in and the organizations that you help. And you mentioned to me about those organizations, and yes. I did look a couple of them up, and they seem like powerful, powerful there's the women that mentored me that run those and put those together. They are amazing women. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of those programs? Well, we have some uh, a lot of websites that are just for other women to get together, talk about their friends, uh, their losses, their loved ones, what happened to them, how they're dealing, to show that they've changed or they're getting opportunity or to ask for help when they can't get and pull themselves up by the bootstrap, so to speak. So we have both. Then we have some things that the women do inside the prison that have now gotten out and are spreading that. We have your, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, um, because you're like your Michelle Jones, your your um, different people that work with the post-incarcerated that have moved on, gotten married, gotten careers, gotten um, opportunities, and then shown the world their power. These are powerful women that should be reckoned with. They're not meek. They're not mild. And yet, they're perfectly done like they are. You can't, and you're Christina Kovacs, you're different people that I have gotten to follow. I I, I can't say enough for them. So you have bricks and mortgages where we're, the girls put that together in the prison, Vanessa Thompson. And they're um, putting that together to try to go in and get homes that are dilapidated, clean up the neighborhoods and take the, the dirt and the grime out of these empty lots, out of the gutters, to talk to the victims. Let the victims talk to what the people that harmed them, that committed crimes against them, so that they can be heard. Our victims are left behind in this situation. They're, you have states that bring these out, let these people get heard. Once the, once the judicial system takes a hold of us, your victim is left behind with nothing. No no closure, nothing. But if they could get together with a person that committed a crime and change and see each other, isn't it the, the person who was victimized, the one that should be able to say yes or no that happens? Yeah. I think so. States that are using it, Wisconsin and such, their recidivism rate is low. Their prison system is is for reconciliation and rehabilitation. They're low on the, I mean, come on, if you have it in numbers and it's working, you've got states like Florida, you've got states like Kentucky that are recovery states, leading the way in the country for rehabilitation over incarceration for drug addicts and drug crimes. Okay? And my daughter was convicted of a drug addiction crime. Yeah, even many of your your high-rate violent crimes are people that are addicted that make a mistake in the moment. We're 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 not in our right mind. I believe in the disease concept. I think we have a disease of the brain no more. Then when I get stung by a bee, I go into anaphylactic shock. 
I'm going to make you laugh probably, but when I'm on drugs, I break out in handcuffs, lying, thieving, stealing, and cheating. That's what I do. Those are my symptoms. You can't see it until it happens. A beast thing, I'm going to swell up, and you're going to know. Diabetes, you're going to know. Cancer, you're going to know. One of the things I go through to help me on a daily basis is nobody would be mad at those people, right? But yet they're mad at the person with the addictive disease. Okay, so yes. when we start looking at that and seeing that most crimes are committed behind drug addiction, not bad people. Exactly. People with disease. Now, somebody would argue for choice. It would be a choice if they didn't put the first one in them. It's not the second, third, or the hundredth one. It's that first one that sets off this disease and now creates a need and an obsession to continue it and can't get stopped until you get arrested. Now you have a statistic. They're arrested. It's a statistic. But what about the human that was before the arrest? Yes. Because, you know, the, the addiction doesn't only affect the person who is the addict. It affects the entire family. It affects the children of the addict. It affects the parents. Um, you know, my husband and I have spent our entire income um, on our daughter yeah. um, with lawyers, with um, sending her money for commissary, for telephone calls, for mm-hmm. her tablet, you know, mm-hmm. to keep her in the lifestyle that she was used to or as close as we can get to it. You and know, we spent $120,000. Oh, my and, goodness. And we'll never see that money again. And but we did it out of the the love that we have for our daughter. So I heard you say that you guys were known in the community and were from a big family. Can you understand how it is from a kid from the, the neighborhoods, the dilapidated neighborhoods, with not as much opportunity, and the parents that are attached to them that don't have a chance to give their child that because they just don't have the financial ability, and they don't I have anyone wanting to help them? I certainly do. There, there are quite a few of um, young women like that in our town, and mm-hmm. one of them happened to be my daughter's best friend. Yeah. And, um, but the problem, the issue I have with that is that this girl was my daughter's best friend, and she actually sat on my daughter's jury and was one of the people who convicted her. Wow. We always have to wonder what goes through people's minds in life when things like that happen, don't we? Yes, we do. And, and you know, I've not forsaken that young lady because she was like a daughter to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she she now sends my daughter money mm-hmm. and helps my daughter out while she's in prison when we can't afford to. And but she's still living the lifestyle that my daughter did. Right. Right. And. It's my hope that at some point when my daughter gets out that she can talk her friend into changing her lifestyle mm-hmm. yeah, and getting so, away from it. So when we talk about people that come from the um, better sides of life that have more opportunity, and then you look at it from that point all the way back to the lower ends of financial stability or environment, we can't forget that that whole range is there and every one of them deserve the opportunity to live the lifestyle that God intended or their higher power or society offers. Right. So so once, once we get the mindset of hood and ghetto and that sort of into a opportunity value system of every individual is and deserves the best that is offered, I think we'll be a better society for it. 
And unless people like you, me, and the women I know, and the people that are inside or have been inside, and the COs and the people that work in the judicial system step up and say, enough. Enough is enough. Across the board, we've got to pull back and change this. Yes. You know, I have a friend um, from Arizona, and her daughter was kidnapped and Mm -hmm. left out in the desert for five days. Oh, my. And when she woke up, she had to walk five days in 128-degree temperature just to find somebody that she could ask for help. And she come across some illegal um, illegal immigrants who did not speak English, and they just laughed at her because mm. she was so burned. She had, I mean, her whole face was blistered, no, yeah. and they laughed at her. So she continued her march through the desert, and she finally came upon a, like a little mini truck stop mm-hmm. out out in the middle of the desert, and she went into this truck stop, and she asked for help, and the people inside laughed at her. Mm-hmm. And she asked, do you have a telephone so I can call my mom to have her come and pick me up? And they said, we have a phone, but you're not using it. And it was because of the way she looked. And... Um, you know, and that was wrong. Um, I would never have turned that young lady away, but she walked out of that truck stop desperate to make it home. And she looked in the cars that were in the parking lot, and she found a car that had keys in it, and she got in it, and she took off like a bolt of lightning. And there was a chase, and the only reason they caught her before she reached home was because one of the immigrants had followed her through the desert and he had um, chased her. Mm. And he finally caught up to her and he bumped the car and it caused her to hit the the side of the guardrail. Mm-hmm. And they arrested her at the scene without any letting her explain why she did what she did. Mm-hmm. And... Now she, I mean, she she got a two-year prison sentence for stealing this car, but the car happened to belong to a police officer. Hmm. And when she was arrested, she was beaten within an inch of her life. Yeah. Um, You know, she has no teeth now because they beat her so badly that she lost her teeth. They -hmm. broke every rib in in her rib cage during this beating. And and in Arizona, the the laws are horrific. Mm-hmm. You know, we think that they're bad here in Indiana, but they're yeah. so bad in Arizona. Yeah, at one time they brought the Arizona overpopulation to the Indiana system. So we have, we do know, we see what they brought to us, and they brought it to us because we're just, we're, we're neck and neck with them. And it's, right. is it crazy how people will look at someone and look down at them? This is a woman in need that didn't get help. I have a the speech impairment that you hear slightly. And if you're too worked up or too tired, you can hear it was from a beating by an officer while I was sober on my job during a seizure just about a year ago. New Year's, it was one year. And the job fired me. I will, I took a urine sample and proved I was sober. So you had your George Floyd, which is the the, the, the thing they put, them, they put their knee in my neck. I was a supervisor at the building that the motel was working at. So you have those things happening across the board. And what's the defining thing? 
they judge someone in the way they look or the circumstances are. Exactly. And, you know, in the nine months that this young girl has been incarcerated, um, she still has not had one phone call to her mother. Mm. Yeah. So we look at this and everybody would say, well, what do we do? You say this is going on. Can you prove it? I can absolutely prove it. And I can show you 100 people can show you just exactly what it was that happened and how it happened and when it happened. And I can probably show you paperwork to trail that up. You know, if I went into uh, those searches and found all those, those are there. But people do not want to look at the fact that this is what our society has become. Then they turn it around on me and they say, yeah, but you guys are the one that did it. Did I? I did do what I did, but what was the system in place when I got there? What was the system in place when I was born? What was the system in place when I was raised? Right? So I can't claim the victim, but I can claim a victim of the wrong kind of mindset. I can blame the victim of the wrong kind of value on myself for not getting it. Did my family do the best they could? Matter of fact, my family's a real good family. My family's a real good family who had to cut me off because of what I chose to do. Now, to get away from all that, I had to take accountability for my part in it. Okay, what part did you have in being abused? And any of the abuses I, 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 I overcame. I had the part that when I realized it was wrong and it wasn't my fault that I carried it, played the victim, used the pity card. You know, I used those things and then didn't do something about it. Now I get the choice again to do something about it. And I will go to my grave trying to be a better person, succeed, and make a difference somehow for someone, even if it's my own self, just by trying. You know, I can't say anything else. That's that's what I want to do. And I know a lot of people are willing to help me. It's what am I going to do with it? Am I going to accept the help? Am I going to reach out and say I need help? That's probably one of the hardest things a person ever has to do is ask for help. It is hard. I mean, there have been times that I've had to ask for help for my daughter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it it just tears my soul apart to have to do it. But I will do anything to help my daughter. Yeah. We have and, an enormous amount of people that are in there, in, incarcerated with your daughter. And she's probably, as a nurse, has that gene, you know, that that nature quality about her. I don't know her, but I'm sure she does. she does. So she's in there with a lot of people that never had anyone who cared about them in the way that was proper and positive. But then you have a lot of people that did have. So none of this is restricted by your upbringing, the lifestyle you had, but it seems to be across the board. Poor people, black people, minorities of other kinds, and then it jumps into your upper echelon of your economics. Because if you don't fly under the under their, their code and their and their ways, they're turning you as well. So yes. to me, it's when is the United States, the, the penal system going to be changed? Rewritten, re-looked at, and when our people, for me, I, the black communities and the Black Lives Matters is a phenomenal thing. But when we see that it takes unity, the Selma, the, the things like that that came across through the Civil Rights Movement, when we see that it's unification of whites, blacks, foreigners, Hispanics, gays, 
all of us standing up together and saying enough is enough. Yes. When we can do that, when we force people to stop making money off of human failure, then we'll be better. But God yes. help us if it never happens. Yeah, and you know, it's, and that's another reason I do this podcast is because I want to bring people together. I want Absolutely. people to stand up and and cry out in one voice that we Absolutely. are not going to take this anymore. Those yeah. people are human beings. They deserve to be treated fairly and given mm-hmm. the opportunity to reform instead of coming out more hardened than what they were when they went in. Yeah. I lived in Louisville during the Breonna Taylor incident. I watched. Oh, yeah. So I lived there during the riots. I lived there and I've seen it. I've been in the black community quite a bit in my life. They picked me up. They walked with me. Then I have the friends that I had in school that were athletes with me that went on to great lives, teachers, coaches, and all of that. And they had to walk away from me. I had given them no other opportunity. Self, um, you know, survival is essential. But when we look around and we say she was valuable and is valuable and will be productive and we will support her, and that means for everyone. When people start doing that to the next man, hey, you can go to bed at night, you can sleep well, you can look in the mirror, and you can say, I wasn't part of the problem, I was part of the solution. And I, I just got to tell you, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing stuff like this because it's people who aren't in the prison system, people who aren't in the communities that are being beaten and, and, and killed by our police system, people who are not doing that, that, that are not involved in that, that come forward and say, wait a minute, this is not right. Morally, ethically, this is not okay. It's people like you that we, we, we wait for the opportunity to say, we see you, we recognize you, and we want to help. So I have to thank you from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> and, you know, I so appreciate that <clears throat> because, you know, I started out, and I'm still just a simple podcaster. I took a walk-in closet and turned it into my office so mm-hmm. I could be, uh, have a quiet place to do my podcast. Mm-hmm. And you saw what happened today. This is the first time I've ever lost a call. And, <laughs> and I was so frustrated. And I, thought, and I called my my little closet or my little office a bad name. I won't be <laughs> on, on here. But now I'm sitting on my bed in order to do our, to finish our interview so I don't lose my signal. Um, but... You know, I appreciate when somebody tells me that I'm doing something that needs to be done and because I do want to make a difference. I do want to bring people together, excuse me, and have them cry out in one voice, enough is enough. Yes. Yes. You know, um, um, I know of a, a, a past sergeant um, guard at Rockville, mm-hmm. and she befriended my daughter, and she told my daughter secrets and that she should not have done, and then she walked away, mm-hmm. and she didn't look back. And my daughter, over the recorded phone line at Rockville, she told me 
everything that this guard had told her. And it is going to be in my book. It was in my first episode of my podcast. Mm -hmm. And that episode has still gotten the most listens or the most downloads since I began this journey. And I hope that with your interview and what everything that you have mentioned and everything that you are doing to bring people together, that this will replace that first episode. That would be fantastic. But I have to have to say it's nothing to do with me. It's something everyone else taught me, guided me, and sent me to do. I follow them. I don't have an original thought in my head. I don't have an original idea. I just have some great people to follow. I have had some phenomenal sisters in the prison system and some people that actually worked there that cared. So I have to give them credit and my higher power credit as well. I can't pick any of it. <laughs> but you are stepping out and you're you're sharing your experiences that you have gotten from these phenomenal women and yes. you are passing the legacy on. So yes, yes you do have you you are making a difference. You Thank do you. have original thoughts. Thank you, ma'am. You know, um, and and it's people like you that I appreciate because you are teaching our young children what not to do, how to stay out of trouble, and to say no, and you know, to cry out. You know, one of the things I want to add to that is I can't excuse me is to always get up. If you fall, I heard I heard someone on a on a on a podcast one time say if you fall fall forward but my biggest my biggest achievement in life is I don't quit I refuse to stay down I watched my cousin get murdered this year I have um quite a few things that happened this year and I keep getting up if you keep getting up and don't let any let anybody let your past define you you have a chance to succeed Yes, that's what I try to do. And, you know, that's one of the things that I have posted over and over again on my um, Facebook page that is also called More Than Just a Number, A Journey Through Incarceration. Yes, Um, And I I think that I posted in there something about I have fallen so many times that I have refused to not get back up. Mm-hmm. I may be weak and lost my way, but I will not stay down. That's right. And, you know, I've had 43 surgeries probably in the last five years, and it's taken a toll on my body. And every time they told me I would not survive, I surprised them all and got back up. Mm-hmm. I am a fighter. And when I took on this crusade of helping incarcerated women, I took on that same mentality. I will not quit. I will not give up until there is prison reform, especially for our women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have started working on a new classification system for the prison systems. And I've showed it to a few people, and they have said that that it would work. Mm-hmm. And now I just have to get that classification system to the right people for them to evaluate. Absolutely. It wouldn't take anything to implement this new change, which would bring about such great reform. Yeah, yeah. It, because you know, 
we've got to hit them in the kind of style. And I bring the street mentality to this. I got to hit them first, and I got to hit them fast, and I got to hit them hard with facts and 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 a solution. I can't just bring what it is. I have to bring the facts of what it are, what it is, and what we are going to do about it. What is the option? What's the solution? I was always told, don't come to me complaining unless you have a solution. I have some solutions, and I know women, and I know people that have solutions. If someone would just listen and try to take a chance. And that's the problem, getting someone to listen. You know, I mean, I can get local people to listen, but what can the local people do? I mean, people in power Mm -hmm. to listen, you know, and and if I can do it, so can others. And that's why I say we all have to come together and stand as one voice. Yes, ma'am. And I think that you are on that road to bringing people together. And I want to join that cause. I want to be a part of that uprising where we do stand up and cry out and say, yes. let my people go. Absolutely. We're talking all all races, all um, ethnicities, all people of um, economic differences. If, yes. we, if we can realize that each and every person has a value, a purpose, and a reason to be respected and loved. Yes. Then the, the, there's no other. The hate mentality is is a waste of time. It really it's a waste is. of time. <laughs> you know, and you know they say that America right now they're saying that America is racist, and I do not believe that. Um, are there still racists in America? Yes, there are. But I think that most people have diversified, and I mean, I, m- me myself, I'm half Indian, American mm-hmm. Indian. And I have never been looked down upon. I've never been criticized for being American Indian, and I'm half Irish. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe I believe what you're saying is true. I do believe that there's quite a bit of racism in the in the country, but let me add this: I think it comes from the upper echelon, so that they keep those of us that get along, the communities, the regular old people, the the blue collar, the regular old people in the world. We get along, but if they can keep us to focus against each other instead of unify, I call for unification of all colors, all races, all cities, all neighborhoods. Go to your neighbor, talk to them, find out who they are. If you don't have the information, you can't make a decision. And if you can't make a decision, then you're nothing but part of the problem. I think we get along fine. I think that they want us to think we don't so that we will fight amongst each other so that the government, the people with the power can do what they want anyways, and we don't notice because we're too busy trying to find out if the neighbor hates me because of my color or my sexual orientation or where I'm from. I think it's a plot, a ploy, and a distraction to the real thing, which is we get along great. It would improve much better if we stop paying attention to the shiny things that they keep putting in front of our face. I believe Amen, that. Sister. Amen. I mean, that is exactly what is happening in this country. It is, the, it is the upper echelon. It is those rich people and the the judicial system that is keeping us divided. Divided, yeah. My friends, majority come from um, low-income neighborhoods, and I have, this is me from high income, but I have a lot of friends of color. I have a lot of friend, friends of different ethnicities. I have a lot of friends in a lot of different areas. And this is it makes me a well-rounded person. And we get along just fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
you know, I remember growing up as a child here in this small town in Indiana. Um, mm-hmm. I was in sixth grade, I believe, when we got our first African-American in our county. I remember and he that. Was shunned, he was shunned by everybody. Mm-hmm. And my mother took one look at him, and she said, he is a good man. Mm-hmm. And yes. it wasn't within a year, the whole county had accepted him. I was raised in a homophobic home. They knew I was a, a, a lesbian. They knew these things. I persisted to try to be in um, relationships with boys to where I hated who I was until somebody said what I was was just fine as long as I was a good person to other people. I was in the category in the 80s that they called wiggers with using the N-word instead of, with a W instead of an N, which were white people who hung out with black people. I was right. in that category. I went across the board to say unacceptable, not my problem, my friends are this, they will be, we are, and we don't care. And so I understand that, and I have seen things done to my black friends that weren't done to me. I have seen things done to me that weren't done to other people because of my sexual orientation. But what happens in your bedroom and my bedroom, I don't ask you. What happens to culturally, we have to look at the systematic reasons each color has a culture and the way they do things, the way they eat, the way they look at their churches, the way they use their communities. We put liquor stores and and things like that on every corner in in, in black neighborhoods. We put them in. They're also in your white neighborhoods, huh? Now they are. Now they are. Our county county has always been known for the number of bars. um, And there's a famous saying, if you ask in Indiana, um, who has the most bars according to churches? You know, versus churches. Our bars outnumber our churches by 50%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my churches out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was raised. Fort Wayne had more churches at the time they were known for churches. But we have, uh, uh, it's much larger, it's much more dangerous than a small city should be. But we have now in in, in lower class white Americans, we have a lot of of, of, of liquor stores and whatnot. But if you Mm -hmm. look at the stigma that came across, so since you're Native American, if that's what you like to call it, I will tell you, I know for a fact that what happened, we gave them liquor and distracted their, their cause. Yes. Black people, we took their men away from their families to create a family unit division. The where women of color are some of the strongest women I've ever met because they had to do two-parent jobs until some of the systems started changing. Those are facts. Now, do they exist as much today? No. I see more white people in prison to see all of that. But at one time, we have to look at that. That was a fact. Now, can we rest on our laurels and take that as an, a reason to not apply ourselves? No. Can we take that as an excuse to play the victim? No. But was it part of the history? And if you don't know your history, you'll repeat it again? Absolutely. So yes. for me, I do know that what I was raised in, is not who I ever was. I was across the board one of those people that rocked the boat right from the beginning. Mom said I came out running, and that's what I've done ever since. I got moving, I keep finding a valve for a And I think that many of the things that are hard to look at is what we have to look at. How, yeah. did, how did communities get the way they are? How did people, human people, feel 
something from 200 years ago in today's day and age? How are young black kids feeling the pressure of slavery when it's been it was cut off years ago? Why do young white people feel as if they have no opportunity to make a change or be something? They have to be different to make a difference because they're white and if they're white, they're just the same as everybody else. So they make themselves different. Why is that across the board with all our different communities? All colors, all ethnic, everything has that thing for their community. Why? Because we want to sit in and we want to be a part of, I think. And because we're told that it doesn't exist, and it does exist, we start looking for the differences rather than looking for the similarities in each other. You're exactly right. I'm the same as the neighbor next door, no matter what color, job, finances, history, upbringing. I'm the same. Yes. It's the truth. You know, whenever I was a child, I was known as the daughter of the town drunk all mm-hmm. through my life. Mm-hmm. And my father was very abusive. And to me, I thought that was the normal thing that occurred in every household. Yeah. And when I found out that it didn't, I took a stand against my father's abuse, and I had him put in prison. And it was the hardest thing I had ever done, but it was one of the easiest things I had ever done. Yeah. I Um, I got to tell you two stories that would relate to that, if you don't mind. I met a girl whose father, she had committed a horrendous crime. Her father had abused her sexually and her sisters, and she still loved him. And I wondered how that happened. And when she explained to me, you won't go into her story like that and tell her business, but when she explained to me how she could still love one, someone who had done that to her, I became completely different on my mindset on what was, was possible when it came to forgiveness. Yes. And you know, father passed away in 1986. Um, it devastated me. You know, he had, my whole life had been abusive to me and my brothers and sisters and to my mother, but it so devastated me that I was lost. Yeah, you love them anyway. Yes, and I thought, how can I, you know, survive without having my dad? Um, He was my protector, even though he was my abuser. Mm -hmm. So I sat down after my parents passed away three days apart, and I sat down and I wrote book Uh and it was about the abuse that I had suffered as a child and the love that I had for my father and my mother Mm -hmm. Um, the book is called eggshells shotgun shells and mother of pearl Mm -hmm. and the eggshells are the symbolic um, nature of having to walk on eggshells around my father not knowing when he was going to hit one of us the shotgun shells are symbolic for when we would get sick as a child and my father happened to be drunk, we he would make us sleep in the bed with him and, and my mother. And in between me and my father was a sawed-off shotgun. Mm. And if something happened to one of us children during the night and we passed, he said that he would kill my mother. Mm. So there is the shotgun shell with, uh, sim- symbolism. The mm. mother of Pearl stands for my mother. Mm-hmm. She was our rock. Mm-hmm. And 
the name just came to me because of what we did go through as, you know, the children of the town drunk. But mm-hmm. my father was a working drunk. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote this book and all of my friends here in town, I, you know, they found out that I had wrote it. They bought themselves a copy and they came to me and apologized for me thinking that that they all thought of me that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was my understanding that they thought that. Mm-hmm. When in reality, they really didn't think that I was the daughter of the town drunk. I lived in a big home. It was a beautiful home. It was a limestone building, and my parents owned it. Mm-hmm. And everybody thought I was just um, a snob, but they didn't consider me the t- the kid of the town drunk. Right. When all of my life I thought they did. So it was my own insecurities that caused me to look at life in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that is when well, we, mine. Yeah, mine and when these the people came, yeah, when these people came to me, they opened my eyes to a new world. And mm-hmm. I started looking at things differently. Mm-hmm. And that's when I became an advocate, not only for inmates, but I became an advocate for people. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I love people. I mean, I don't care what color of their skin they are, what nationality. I mean, we all bleed red. You know, we 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 all get addicted. We all get uh, incarcerated. We all make mistakes. We all somehow suffer, whether we're caught or not. Some people don't get caught, and they they you know, they abuse themselves in their mind and living in a mindset, and it's fear-driven society. And I think that's a shame that I'm the black sheep of my family. Yes, I was the one that was supposed to go to, to college and finish and do something. I played professional, semi-professional faster softball. I coached kids. I worked with abused children, and I was the only one that went to prison. My grandfather worked in the the, the bringing into the United States uh, unions. He um, was a phenomenal man. Played professional baseball. My mother was a Miss Auburn, Indiana, on her 18th birthday. My sisters and brothers, my aunts and uncles, own businesses. How did I fall for so far? When you teach a child to not love themselves, I say our problem with our children is we didn't teach them value and keep them safe. If you can do those two things with your children, they will know love. They will see themselves as valuable. They will see their their peers as valuable, and they'll stop killing each other. I agree 100%. I mean, you have opened my eyes even further than what they have been with your story. And I am so thankful to you for that. And um, thank you for getting the opportunity to do this. Well, um, before we close, do you have any words of wisdom or advice that you would like to give to young women who are on the streets doing what you did, what my daughter did? Um to keep them from continuing any further before yeah, they end I, up in prison. Yeah, I, I say don't ever give up. Don't believe in what people say. Believe in yourself. If you don't, no one else will. Reach out, ask for help, grab opportunity, and hold on tight. If it's not the right opportunity, be willing to let go of it and try for something new. There's no harm in falling. 
and going in a different direction and getting up, falling and not trying is failure. Falling and getting back up is success. Keep moving forward. Don't ever let anybody define you by what you've done or, or a mistake you've made. That was just pure poetry in my mind, what you. you just said. And um, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing your story. It's been so inspirational. And I hope that our listeners look at it that way also. Because like I said at the beginning, you were once considered the most violent offender in Indiana. But then you changed. And you became known as the most changed offender. And it's my hope that others can take your story and do what you did. Anyone can. Anyone can. Yes. And I think with your story that change is about to happen um, because of people like you. Thank you. Who are fighting fighting for our loved ones behind bars. It doesn't matter, like you said, it doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is, what... um, ethnicity they are, what color, you know, where they come from, the wrong side of the tracks or the affluent side, um, we're all still the same. We all make mistakes. And with with your words, I think that a lot more people are going to open their eyes and start to see things in that way. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome, Hum, and I do want to thank you for being on my podcast today, and I know that it will make a difference in someone's life. I hope so. You well, have a thank great you day. so much, and you have a wonderful, blessed day. Thank you. You're welcome, honey. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.